Welcome to another episode of The Back Row Theologians, a podcast where two guys with a particular set of skills talk about theology or whatever else comes to mind. And now here are your hosts, Andrew and Ian. Well, howdy, and welcome to another episode of The Back Row Theologians, a conversation about theology, the church, and the Christian life with a little nonsense in between. I'm your host, Yates. And this is Ian. And we are continuing our conversation about spiritual disciplines. Um, This last week, we were talking um, just kind of a big overview of spiritual disciplines. And uh, this week, we're jumping into um, uh, what does it mean to be disciplined in studying the scripture. Um, But I think, Ian, uh, you know, after we were talking for a little while, there's, there's a little, there's a couple buzzwords we need to throw into the conversation before we do jump in. Buzzwords. Everyone likes a good buzzword. <laughs> maybe not a buzzword. Maybe vocabulary. Maybe that's the word I'm looking for. Sure. Well, let me. I'm gonna. I'm gonna start by just running through some stuff that I. Uh, I've just been thinking about the last couple of weeks, uh, because I've been doing a lot of reading about the concept of revelation. So this is something I talked about. Uh, well, not the book revelation. The, in the, right, the concept of revelation. So this is some stuff I talked about uh, in the episode you were gone, Andrew. Uh, but this kind of okay. continues, continuing some of this that thought. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try to run you through Andrew some some quick ideas I've been thinking about, and I think that they'll be helpful uh, for understanding uh, where we're going as far as approaching the need for revel uh, scripture as a discipline. Before we started, we actually were talking about this yesterday, I, and I asked you what was your concept of a spiritual discipline, and I'm curious if you would uh, if you would repeat that because I think it's helpful. Oh sure. Um, so there's a there's a guy named Richard Foster who wrote a book called Celebration of Disciplines. I, I'm sure or Celebration of Discipline. I'm I'm pretty sure you've you've read that. It's something of a, oh, yeah. a sure, classic. Sure. It's a classic. Um, well, as far as, you know, it's a classic, everything's, anyway, um, he's only been dead for 50 years, so how classic can it be? But he, uh, he has the idea of saying, um, we can't force God to do anything. Um, but there Mm -hmm. is a natural order for how the world tends to work. And so when I, um, plant seeds, um, I'm going to plant them outside. I'm not going to plant them under a roof where they can't get any sunlight or they can't get any water. And so I think um, when I think about spiritual disciplines, the way that Foster described it was, how can we position and order and structure our lives so we can um, uh, be in step um, with how God has designed things to work and how we can expect God, the natural thing we can expect is for God to work through us. Um, Mm -hmm. So if that makes sense, I think positioning myself or what are the routines or the habits or the lifestyle that's that's gonna be the most reasonable to expect that's the sort of lifestyle god will use right and so the question that we're basically talking about today i think it's fair to say is how does scripture put using scripture put us in a position where we are it's you know probable cause i guess you could say that god could use us sure well i mean practically lots of evil people love the bible Lots of sure, people yeah. who reject Jesus as as God love the Bible. Every heretic's been using, been reading the same Bible that you or I are reading. Right. So I wanted to to start real fast with uh, with just to, talking about how important World War One was for the shape of uh, West or we could say Western theology, which sure. may be a weird place to start. No, but, I love it. Uh, 
actually World War One and World War Two were hugely, hugely influential in all of Western theology. A lot of our, uh, a lot of our theologians um, that were very influential actually were in World War Two. Jürgen Moltmann, who was a German theologian, was in a, a prison camp. Uh, Paul Tillich. Uh, was in the war. A lot of uh, major ones were, but World War One actually was even maybe more traumatic uh, because there had been this movement in the late um, the late 1800s, early 1900s in German theology. Uh, it was that was brought about by what's called the historical critical method. Um, and I don't know if we've actually talked specifically about what historical critical means. Um, but this would be different than may, you might have heard us talk about historical grammatical. Uh, but it kind of it came up the idea that there was all this advancement going on in the idea of history. How do you study history? And then when then somebody realized, well, the whole idea about history is that you look at an event and you try to correlate it to things that happen today so you can understand it. Well, that makes sense. Well, then some people started realizing, well, if you look at the at the Bible as history, it has all these miracles in it. And miracles aren't things that we see today. So it brought up this very critical attitude of, of reading scripture in that we, if we look at it, we see things that don't happen today. So that means we need to parse out of scripture the things that really happened and get rid of the stuff that's kind of stuff that must have been added later by the church. Sure. Um, like they made up all these miracle stories. And stuff. Sure. So this is called the an ad, like a historical critical attitude. Uh, and this this uh, came to a head at uh, some people like uh, like Adolf von Harnack, for instance. So Harnack would say, "Hold up, Adolf is his first name." Yes, this was one that happened. I don't like this Adolf. guy. Let me tell you right yeah, now, sure. I'm, he's going to have to win me over. He's got some work to do. Yeah. So Harnack, for instance, would say that uh, that you had uh, Pauline, you had Petron Christianity, uh, Peter, and then you have Pauline Christianity, oh, which yeah. is, and then these were synthesized into John, the book of John. So John synthesizes these two ideas together. So what you have in the Gospel of John is not actually anything that has to do with Jesus. It's just a synthesis of the church between two opposing views of what Jesus is. And so the idea of a lot of this school was to basically try to go in and you go in with your vision of what you think Jesus might be. You know, was Jesus an apocalyptic prophet? Was Jesus a wisdom teacher? And they're going in and they're trying to extract the real Jesus. This is actually, if you grew up in the 90s, you might have heard about the Jesus Seminar sure. uh, that was doing a very similar sort of thing. Um, so the, the problem was that, um, and the reason this ended up being so influential, about 90 theologians from the school signed on uh, to the the um the chancellor's uh war philosophy in World War One is basically saying like we we as the church think that this war is a a, a good thing, and so it came, it caused a huge crisis in Western theology when uh at the end of the war when they looked at the cost a lot of these theologians and they, they kind of say well how did the church get to a point where everyone's everyone seemed to think this was a good idea in the German church and it caused quite a stir. And it really influenced uh, a generation of thinkers. One of those is Karl Barth. So I'm not a huge Barthian, uh, but Karl Barth is really significant because he was kind of the first person. He looked at this, and then he looked at the theology he had been taught, and then he kind of raised the the red flag that like something might be going wrong here. So this is a great this is a great uh, quote. And, uh, this is from uh, a lecture he gave near the end of his life. 
So he says, the danger of giving normative status to the secular worldview is illustrated in the case of Harnack. Although a distinguished historian virtue of his seven-volume history of dogma, yes, he wrote a seven-volume history of dogma, and then he, he wrote this celebrated book called The Essence of Christianity, uh, called, what, called What is Christianity? So this is what Bart says, though obviously what much of what he says about criticism of the Bible is valid, the method reduces itself to absurdity when all in effect left with all all in effect we are left with is Jesus promulgating the same sort of values as any German liberal intellectual at the turn of the century. Zing. <laughs> uh, and, I mean that's that's such a great and he would basically say the reason that all of these uh, German liberal theologian this Harnacking school were able to just sign off at what uh, at what. Uh, the chancellor wanted to, that started World War One was because the Jesus they had came up come up with was awfully had all of the same values as they did. Yeah, and so that that's, it's really interesting. So it got me thinking about the idea between an ideology and an idea. Hmm. Ideology. Uh, this actually comes from a little bit of uh, of Marxist work. Don't get don't get too uh, too worried about that, but. Uh, it's been picked up by a guy named uh, Slavo Zizek. Have you ever heard of Zizek? Zizek? Sounds like a guy that explores the bottom of the ocean. That's Jacques. G- Zizek, by the way, is spelled Z-I-Z-E-K. Oh, my God. Um, Zizek, he's probably the, um, the most famous Slovenian of all time. He's a Slovenian philosopher. Uh, and he's been called the most dangerous philosopher in the West. Uh, he's actually pretty popular on uh, on YouTube because he's just kind of this crazy sort of uh, figure. He's alive right so, now. He is, yeah. I'm looking him up right now. That's awesome. Zizek. Um, he he uh, sniffles a lot, and he touches and he touches his nose a lot when he uh, when he talks. He's this kind of just crazy eccentric um, Marxist philosopher, but he's actually very uh, yeah. He he's, has a he's very popular if you kind of watch youtube videos um and he's a he's a very important figure um he's picked up marx's idea of ideologies a lot and so the idea about an ideology is that basically an ideology is a set of ideas that supports the social framework um and the whole criticism of ideologies for zizek and for marx and such was that basically ideologies are in societies that they can allow you to feel like you're being con- that you can that you're being um, free thinking, but really all you're doing is just supporting the status quo. Which you already your presuppositions. You've, you've right. found what you were looking for from the very beginning. Right. So one of the, for instance, that Zizek talks about. So and you know I'm not saying endorsing it. So but he he talks about the idea of organic organic food. And he basically said, like, the whole purpose of organic food is it doesn't actually change anything about how the way the way the world works or if we're being more sustainable or anything like that. All it does is that it allows person to be all about, oh, like, I buy organic food and then they feel better about themselves, but they haven't actually changed anything about the way the world works or how they see the world. Hmm. Um, I certainly, you know, yeah. I certainly know some vegans that probably would fall into that category. Mm. You know, no offense to the vegans. There are some great vegans out there. Um, so that's a, so that's on the one side is ideologies is kind of a set of ideas that makes you maybe feel revolutionary, but doesn't actually have to change any of the way you see the world. Mm. 
contrast with this, so I had to read an article uh, about um, big ideas. This is a concept we had to uh, to read some about this, Andrew, when you and I were doing preaching classes, right? That, um, and so this is this is an article I had to read on what is a big idea. It's by Grant Wiggins. This is so this is particularly it's a teaching article about pedagogy, how we teach. So it says an idea is big if it helps us make sense of lots of confusing experiences and seemingly isolated facts. It's a picture that connects the dots or a simple rule of thumb in a complex field. So, for instance, uh, equals MC squared could be kind of thought as a big idea, right? It just it's a big equals idea. MC it equals MC squared fundamentally changed the entire way physicists see the world, despite it being a kind of a simple. Um, and so a big idea is basically something that totally revolutionizes the way you see everything and all of your relationships between uh, isolated facts. So it's kind of the diff the, the opposite of an ideology. So my, this is what I'm thinking. You know, thanks for being patient, uh, listeners, and Andrew, which I ran through that. Here's no, kind of no, my no. ideas. I, I, feel like, um, I feel like this is um, uh, supremely applicable. Keep going. Right. Right, so let's call let's call an, an ideology an ism. A lot of ideologies have ism English, uh, Indians in in English, you know, capitalism and Marxism and such. Right, and and so as opposed to iti. So in in English, the subjects uh, iti like generosity means like the concept of of it's a a thing that has the adjective. Right, so generosity is an is a something that possesses the quality of generous right mm -hmm. so the question is how do we create a christianity that's christianity and not christianitism because i think actually you know bart would say that harnack didn't practice christianity he practiced christianitism because it turns out that the jesus that he encountered was an awfully lot a lot like what he already thought sure sure um so and you and this is this before anybody gets on their high horse, right? This, this is really dangerous even for, I think, a lot of people that shake their fist at the culture wars. They're just as in danger of doing that. They can sit down and say like, well, you know, the Bible is revolutionary. It doesn't cause you to think just like the culture, right? But maybe yeah. maybe it just happens that they're just accepting uh, the culture from which, which they received, right? Maybe it's not the secular culture, but that doesn't mean it's not any less of a Christianitism than a Christianity, right? Sure. And so I think this, so that's, that's the framework for, I think, what we're trying to to um, talk about today in the sense that in order for, I, th I order for you to, I think, be fully embracing uh, the Christian life, you it, ha it has to come with the understanding that it will fundamentally, that Jews will fundamentally rearrange everything about how you see the world. You know, my, one of my favorite movies is V for Vendetta. It's got this great line at the beginning that, a man can man can die, but five hundred years later, an idea can still change the world. And in some sense, it's amazing that two thousand years later, this idea of Jesus is still changing the world. And he was a person, right? But like the idea of Christianity is still changing the world and rearranging how we see everything. Sure. Um, and so I'm going to give you a couple thoughts, Andrew, and then we're gonna we're gonna work this into the idea of of the scripture. Okay. You're exactly right. I mean, we all have confirmation basis or bias and then and i think the idea that uh what is the right theology um as soon as i think i've arrived um then I, and i've left a position of humility saying 
um, I have my own biases and even biases that I'm unaware of. Even the, the most humble person is unaware of their own assumptions. Um, they're, right. We're in trouble. Uh, I got up this morning, took a shower. And uh, so I have I have longer hair. So as anybody, you know, that, that lives in some place with longer hair, every once in a while you've got to clean locks. out. Okay. Some, you've got to clean out the, the shower drain every once in a while, right? So the shower wasn't uh, draining very well. Ugh. So I leaned, I leaned down to try to, like, dig out um, some of the hair from the drain. This is maybe, gross. Maybe this, isn't, maybe this is an uncouth uh, example. But then, so about a couple of days ago, I had cleaned my bathroom, okay? And... Um, I, I, you know, I'd gotten the, like the little stuff you put in the toilet bowl, right? Where that like bleaches it out, right? And scrubbed it down with the brush. And I, so I, as I leaned, as I, you know, as I knelt down to clean out my shower drain, because it wasn't uh, draining well, I looked over at the toilet and I could see the, there was this line of like, just that I hadn't cleaned, right? Underneath the lip of like the toilet bowl, right? I could see distinctly the line of where I'd put like put like the the bleach stuff and I was a little bit embarrassed at myself and I realized though that like from from my perspective before it had looked perfectly clean right but in the sense of me but in the act of me trying to do something else it changed my perspective and I realized I could no longer hold that viewpoint anymore mm. uh, and it struck me maybe it's because I was thinking about I, don't know, I was about getting ready to talk about this that's how what a great example that is right about how paradigm shifts work right and so here's here's how i think if you wanted to change somebody's i thinking about something here's how i think ideas work you start with a few facts okay so you start with a collection of individual facts you build those together into a framework so the idea is kind of like you if two people could make the same could make different mosaics with the same collection of tiles right you know, you take those tiles and you arrange them into a different, into a, um, into a picture, right? So you take some facts, you arrange them into a, uh, a framework. You then you can use that framework to explain um, the rest, other facts that you know. Um, so this is, for instance, would be C, like C.S. Lewis's statement that um, I believe in the sun, not just because I see it, but by it I see everything else, right? Once you build a framework, it sure. provides a new way. And then finally, you test whether or not it's a good framework by uh, extending it into new situations. So I think that's kind of the that's the the framework. So for instance, if I were teaching a class about something and I wanted people to to understand something new, I'd start with some individual facts, build it into a framework, show how that framework has explains things and then show how it's useful by taking them into new territory. Yeah. So like, um, like if I'm going to teach someone how to whittle, say with wood, I'm going to teach them a couple ways to cut safely and then say, Hey, here's, here's the first thing to try this out, these new skills with, and here's, and slowly increase in, in difficulty. But I think that's, uh, you know, thinking intellectually, that's how, um, instead of like maybe tactile, tactile, that's how the Constitution was hmm. framed. Um, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Hey, we're just we're starting off um, this country with these truths that inform this worldview, and then the whole world sat back and said, "Hey, let's see if um, this democratic concept um, is effective in the real world. Let's try it out." Yeah, exactly. Um, 
So here's why I think that's that's interesting, Andrew. So first of all, I think understanding that uh, all allowing yourself to be challenged actually starts with looking at in, at, at looking at individual instances. Um, and this is why I think it, this whole conversation is important with scripture. That if you do, uh, what do you mean by individual? Yeah, and so that's the, uh, let me be a little more clear there. Uh, in order, if you don't, um, if you don't encounter specific concrete examples, your uh, your framework will never be challenged. You'll never have to see if it can hold up. And you're dangerously close to your framework becoming an ism instead of an iti, you know. And so I think that... Oh, if there's no practical application, right. you mean. So it's kind of like, you could say, like, you know, it's like the sports team that only practices but never plays a game. Um, or, the per, or, you know, the, the musician that never picks up and writes something. Or, um, or, in this case, I would say the Christian that never has to encounter scripture. Um, if you never actually <laughs> encounter scripture specifically, I think, uh, and with an attitude, specifically with an attitude of letting scripture challenge you, I think that yeah. you, your Christianity will become a Christianitism. And so that's, that's kind of what, what I've been circling around with all of this. I think that the, fundamentally, if you want scripture to be a big idea, the idea of Jesus to fundamentally change change the way you see the world it has to start with encountering individual passages of scripture looking at scripture oh yeah the the real idea of jesus not your idea of jesus or maybe the idea of jesus that was communicated to you but the the concepts of um jesus as he is um if you're not a little uncomfortable um as you approach scripture which reveals Christ, then maybe you're not reading it, or maybe you've perfectly understood it. <laughs> right, exactly. So that's kind of my my framework, what I'm, which I'm starting with for this conversation, uh, is that uh, how, and so I, I would say that, that, that what I described before was, I would say, the process of theology. The, I would say that theology is the process of building the framework, testing the framework to see if it holds up, and then taking it to a new you know, new destinations, right? But all of that, I would say, is mm -hmm. the idea of, of theology. But all of that is predicated from that very first uh, idea of, of individual observations, right? Uh, Einstein didn't just come up with E equals MC squared, right? He made a whole lot of observations, and then he had to say, well, how do I build these into into a framework, Right. And I think that too often sure. with Scripture, sometimes we just accept the framework which has been given to us. And then every once in a while, we might read something in Scripture or pick a few verses that seem to match that framework and say, hey, look, see how this supports my framework? And, but really what we should be doing, that the basic task of allowing Scripture, uh, sometimes it's phrased, allowing Scripture to read us instead of reading Scripture, uh, is encountering it consistently to see if basically the framework you have, the viewpoint you have can hold the weight of what it actually says. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I would definitely agree with that. I think um, one of the challenges 
it's it's really hard, I guess I'll just say, to have a completely changed worldview. Sure. And you know, we were talking this last week about um how the the human nature, uh you and I both believe is uh horribly bent in and on mm-hmm. itself, so self-focused instead of um outwardly focused. And so I think to to take a perspective and completely change the direction of my worldview, um I think that's the, that you're describing the shift from um, like an Earth-centered orbit, and for the the, the solar system to a, a Sun-centered mm-hmm. orbit, and I know that's cliche and punny, but I mean that was, I mean, catastrophic for the the way the culture and the people of the West viewed themselves and their mm-hmm. role, and I think it took a long time, at least a generation, to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think that's true for us as well. Like it's it's a it's a lifelong process for us to go from. Hey, let me focus on myself versus focus on what what God says about myself and all mm-hmm. things. But that's a complete world. The way I view the world um, change. That's painful. I guess I think, my point. So that idea of orbit is actually a pretty good example because so when you put a satellite into space, it takes a huge amount of energy. But basically, the but then you can get to a point where you get the satellite in a particular position at a particular speed, and it just continues to orbit, right? It just it just becomes orbiting, yeah. and I think a lot of people view maybe their Christian life this way, right? Well, I have to put a lot of initial energy in when I first got saved, right? Or maybe when I was in college, when I had time to do oh, it, that's interesting. I could put all the energy into studying the Bible, right? But now, like, I can just kind of orbit, uh, and I think that uh, our lives are much less like a satellite and more like the aquarium sitting to my left. So my roommate got an aquarium about a couple months ago. And he is uh, – it's interesting how constantly he's having to check the water and tweak things. Tweak right? everything. Because the reality is that left to itself, aquariums do not keep the status quo. Aquariums kill what is in it by itself, right? Uh, and so yeah. it's not the case that we can just kind of uh, read a devotional every once in a while, maybe hear a sermon we sit through every once in a while, but just kind of coast – in a Christian worldview, that's not the way. That that is a low view of sin that we end up adopting if we do that. We have to understand that ourselves are constantly that framework which we have is constantly exchanging itself for something else, and we need the constant renewal of our minds, which comes by actually encountering, you know, I guess you could say the the fa- the, the facts of Scripture, which can change our perspective, right? Well, it is it is tricky, and uh, we've talked a lot about um, how to understand the Bible or hermeneutics um, in previous um, conversations. Mm-hmm. But when we talk about the facts of Scripture, um, there's a ton that goes into interpreting what is exact what exactly is that's Scripture right. Saying. Yes, and so it is way more complicated than just saying engage Scripture and what it says. That's what's true because. A, there's a lot of debate over what scripture says. That's right. Yeah. So I think um, I think you're absolutely right, but I think it's um, uh, it's just like an aquarium. It's incredibly complicated. It is really complicated, right? And we're actually so uh, at the back end of this episode, we're going to spend a lot of time uh, talking about different ways that uh, strategies a person might adopt to maybe doing that and doing the hard work, right? Um, you could think of it maybe like if you wanted to get if you wanted to be healthier. There's different ways you go about it, right? There's some you could run, you could go to the gym, you could do CrossFit, you know. Um, you could strategies for doing that hard thing, right? Um, 
So let me let me ask you, Andrew. So uh, the if the basic idea that that I'm proposing at least is that the discipline of scripture is uh, the discipline is there in order to constantly challenge our framework of viewing the world, so that we hopefully have God's framework instead of our own. That's the idea of, of, of the discipline of Scripture. Let me ask a couple of questions. Sure. First of all, why Scripture? Why does, I mean, because I could maybe take out Scripture and put in other things, uh, podcasts, uh, ser- favorite sermons, YouTube series. Um, Just art in general, dance. Uh, right. So why why does scripture have this particular place, would you say, in the life of the church and God's people? You know, as, as I'm looking through different resources that talk about um, spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices, uh, consistently the idea of uh, scripture is um, is pr- as primary is a pretty is a pretty common theme. Um, and I think there's there's probably two elements to that I think in scripture. Um, the Bible, the Bible holds itself as, as the, um, the prime way that God has revealed, um, himself. Um, the clearest way maybe is, is the way I would put it. The clearest way that God has chosen to reveal himself. Um, you've got the idea of God revealing himself in nature, God revealing himself, um, in all sorts of ways, God convicting man through, of sin, um, by his spirit. But I think the clearest way God reveals himself is through scripture. Mm-hmm. But then, I mean, you look at Romans 12, it says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then once your mind is being is is being transformed and renewed um, from what it was to a new thing, then you'll be able to discern what is the good, pleasing and perfect will of God. So when we talk about having God's perspective, it's it's the battle starts in the mind. Mm. So there's lots of conversations I think about. um, and like, in, you know, we talked for a little bit about what's the difference between the spirit and the mind. But I think the way we think about things is as foundational um, to our um, ability to understand rightly um, from God's perspective as any amount of fasting or um, there, really any other spiritual discipline. If we have if we've ignored our mind, then we're toast. Yeah, and I want to, uh, and, and maybe this is me preaching to someone that's not in our audience, but again, I've I've been doing all of this reading about um, the idea of revelation. I'm, I do want to point out here two points that I think are particular for the tradition that probably most of our listeners are in. That first of all, it is important to understand that the goal of Scripture is not Scripture itself. That Scripture, as the Word of God, ultimately points us to the life of God and and God Himself, and I think that's important to understand. Right, the goal is not just knowledge of the Bible, right? But we, I think, the fundamental, um, unique part of our tradition is that we feel that, that Scripture has a unique place as the Word of God. That it is actually the yeah. Word of God. That God is encountered in Scripture in a unique way. That it's not fair just to say that Scripture points us to God, Scripture points us to the Word, that Scripture is the Word, even if it's not the end goal. The end goal is the relationship with God, that Scripture itself has a unique way of doing that. That's my conviction. And that puts me at different than, um, than even, a lot of, even a lot of more conservative Christian traditions um, 
since the 20th century. Why don't you, would you expound a little bit? I'm curious to know. So I'm curious to know how they would uh, articulate that versus you would. Could you maybe talk more about that? Uh, and so I know a lot of our listeners have probably ne- never heard the name of Karl Barth, uh, but Barth was massively influential. We, we talked about him before. Massively influential in altering the flow of a lot of uh, Christian of the Christian West away from find I would say finding uh, or I guess a high skepticalness that uh, what we see in the Jesus of Scripture being actually real to to say no like actually Scripture is the foundation of the Christian religion, but still even then a person yeah. like Bart. Uh, and a lot of people that um, that followed him, which if you go to – if you – I would say if you went to uh, religious or divinity schools or so in the West, probably uh, 40% are still kind of following in the footsteps of Harnack and 40% are following in the footsteps of Bart. Um, it's it's that massive. Wow. Even if they're not specifically Bartians, kind of the theological shift that he set off. And so Bart would still say that Scripture is the Word of God, but kind of the Word of God. It's the Word of God in the sense that it leads us to the Word, and the Word would be Christ. <laughs> Ouch. So it's the Word of— So kind of the Word of God, but not the Word of right. God. Right. Help me out right. with that. And so I think that I would, and I and I think you and I would both say that the difference would be we would be a little bit more stronger saying no, Scripture is the Word of God. God's communication is found in Scripture, and it's not just kind of a conduit. It's more than just a conduit to lead us to Christ. It's actually God's communication to us. Is that fair? Oh yeah, yeah, uh, and I think um, passages. Um, like Second Timothy three sixteen, all Scripture is God breathed, mm-hmm. um, is living and active. Um, scripture, like uh, um, in Hebrews, uh, the Word of God is like a, a two edged sword, living and active, cutting the division of joint and marrow. Um, there's something unique and alive about Scripture that sets it apart from other texts, other even other divinely inspired right. things. Um, yeah, and I think even, for instance, I've been looking at, I don't think people typically go to First Peter, but I think if you go to uh, to First Peter is a great place, um, where it talks about... You mean in general or in this in this in particular? particular, particular um, <laughs> There's a lot in... A lot of their people right. don't go to. Actually, I you know I, I would commit people to go and go and read First Peter if you haven't for, uh, in a while. But First Peter chapter one is very strong about the word of God and and even strongly connects that back to the Old Testament, the prophecies. Uh, you know, it talks about all flesh is like grass; the grass withers and the flower fails. The word of the Lord endures, endures forever, and and it's it's it uses that term, the word of the Lord, quoting from the Old Testament prophets and saturating itself with the understanding of the Old Testament. I think. Peter understood um, understood the word of God to be scripture. Uh, and so I think that this is the dance that we do that uh, it's typically called biblicism. And it's another ism, right? That biblicism is often a form of Christism, Christianism, where we, uh, we are satisfied with just understanding the Bible and not allowing it to form us. Uh, but I think, and that's a that's a fair point. You know, there is 
the end of scripture is not scripture it is god but it's not fair i think to say that it's that scripture itself doesn't uh doesn't function as the as the voice of god in the life of the church hmm it's interesting um i feel like uh um majority of my so i'm, I'm in a unique situation um even as a as a younger pastor i've only been a pastor for um I mean, it's my full-time job for five years now, but I feel like, and I, I have got a position where I'm leading other pastors that maybe have been in their role longer. Um, but the thing that I keep coming back to is, um, hey, what does God say about mm-hmm. this? Um, we, if God has already answered this question and spoken this discussion, we don't have to, we don't have to talk about it. Um, we just have to obey. And I think uh, a friend of mine called me and said, hey, um, a woman gave me a, a woman who's in the, you know, in the city that I'm responsible for. She called me and said, Hey, there's a member of my small group thinking about getting a divorce. What should I do? What should I tell her? And I said, and, and he said to her, um, well, has God, what does God say about divorce? We should start with that. And if, I mean, if it takes a long time to get here, we can spend an hour for the next time that, you know, the next time we're together to say, let's look right now and say, let's Google it. That does God already spoken about divorce? Um, and that should inform where we're at today instead of necessarily starting with our worldview. I think you're um I think you're right to set scripture up high on a shelf. Um you see, I mean, in first Peter two two, you know, um Peter who was hanging out with Jesus, who touched and hung out with Jesus, he drives his listeners to look at um scripture as as a newborn baby would with milk. And so every four hours, every six hours maybe for a little older baby, a baby is drinking milk. And so I think if you and I are supposed to be like newborn babies longing for the word, mm-hmm. that's every four hours we're coming back to scripture. Right. <laughs> that's that's as foundational, you know, as, as any monastic order, you know, up in the hills somewhere in a monastery, you know, praying and fasting. If it's every four hours, we're like a newborn baby eating. That's a That's as disciplined as anything, specifically around scripture. I think that's a pretty, I don't know anywhere in the Bible you've got that sort of a mindset. I mean, you've got Psalm 119. Every single verse is talking about Scripture. If only I was predisposed to keep your statutes. If I were focused on your commands, I would learn your regulations. Um, I will keep your statutes. Um, how blessed are those whose actions are blameless, who obey the law of the Lord. I mean, it's Psalm 119 is massive, but almost every single verse is mentioned Scripture. And it's just like, oh, scripture is important. Okay, <laughs> I get it. And so I think um, the Bible and the early church viewed scripture as primary just for the reasons you're saying. based upon an article that I read. Uh, and I'm, I want to be careful because I know that this is a really tricky subject for a lot of people, but I'm going to give, I'm going to give my, my opinion on this. Uh, but let, let me be said I didn't give my opinion on something. So uh, earlier this week, my, my uh, Facebook feed was flooded with this article of everybody being uh, posting this article about this, um, <clears throat> this, uh, police officer in Dallas who had shot and killed an African-American uh, and she was convicted and she was going to go and she was going to jail for this. 
and the brother of the person that was killed um, came and like gave her a hug and told her that she he forgave her and that she should give his her life to Christ. I'm I'm sure that you probably saw this article, right? Yeah. Just you know, just just flooded, and when I saw that, I was, I was like, here it comes, here it comes. I knew what was coming. So, um, article gets article gets written for the Washington Post by a person who actually writes for the Gospel Coalition. Um, and I'm let me actually uh, let me actually pull up a different quote before I talk about this. Um, so let me pull this up real fast. Okay, here's a fun quote. So this is actually this is a person that teaches divinity. So teaches Christianity, Andrew, in a, an institution in your state. Um, so this is this is the what their response. Um, the verdict of the police officer in Dallas of ten years in prison, plus the show of grace and forgiveness by the brother of the murder victim, just like after the massacre at Emanuel AME, requires that we ask some hard questions. What if grace and forgiveness? And their compulsory performance in the of uh, the society are part of a racist world. Um, what if they work in the entrance of what he calls anti-blackness? What if grace and forgiveness are racialized? Um, and what if grace and forgiveness are part of what we must refuse? Um, and this is actually a general attitude, which I, I this is why I knew that it was coming. Um, because there's a lot of talk kind of around academies about um, whether or not grace and mercy needs to be rejected by Christians uh, because it's unfair to victims. To that showing grace is unfair to other victims. Um, whoever to have experienced the same thing. And so this uh, this person who writes for the Gospel Coalition and I mean, I'll just go and put it on the table. I think it is a, it is a shame, and it is a tra- it is a travesty that that the Gospel Coalition I think lets this person masquerade as an evangelical in there. Not that I'm the biggest fan of the Gospel Coalition, but this person wrote wrote an article, uh, but basically in the Washington Post saying that uh, that that it is unchristian. It was unchristian, essentially, for this person to have shown forgiveness to um, this person who killed her, his brother. Um, and, and they go through, and it's interesting that they quote scripture. They basically quote from the prophets, basically saying about, you know, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed. Um, you know, they said the Bible urges justice and not just forgiveness. Um so, first of all, I'm ash- I'm ashamed by this, Andrew. Why are I, you ashamed? It, if you and I understand this is a very complicated issue, and I do, and I think the the underlying idea that 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 the Bible teaches both grace and justice is true. Uh, but any person, I think, that has come to grips with the massive forgiveness that they have received in Christ to say that grace and forgiveness is not the Christian response to any situation, I think hasn't understood the grace which they've received. Um, it's an example of, yeah. 
Um, Christ, you know, when Christ says, I didn't come to heal the sick, but the, but the, the, or I didn't come to heal the well, but the sick, right? That you mm-hmm. think you're well, you think you have the high ground and you don't understand the grace, which has been given to you. Even if you've been dealt, even if you've been dealt a bad shake at life, you don't understand the grace that's been given to you. Yeah, I, I do believe that, uh, so I, I was just talking with a a woman who had been severely um, uh, hurt by someone very close to her. And um, she's talking through, hey, do I do this? Do I do that? What's my response? And uh, I, I mean, it was, I, I, I told her what I think is true here. Um, something that's not an option is whether or not we move towards the other person in forgiveness. Um, that's not uh, approval. And that's not um, affirming. But it's saying, hey, what you've done was wrong, and I, I'm going to choose not to hold that against you. And, I mean, we've got a ministry of reconciliation, is how the Scripture describes every Christian's role. Um, just as Christ moved towards us, we're called to move towards um, our neighbors, how we've mm-hmm. been loved. But I think um, there is, uh, I think, a place to say we, sh- we should move towards justice as much as we can within our context. Um, but in a lot of ways, things are just going to have to wait on Christ to bring right. justice. Um, we don't see the justice in our in our lives. But I'm curious. Um, so I I haven't I, I've actually um, run out of I've read all my free articles. Um, so I haven't been able to access um, this specific mm-hmm. article. But what is the um, what is the wrong that this person is concerned about showing grace? Mm-hmm. Is it is it uh, uh, white versus black? Uh, transgressions? Is it cops? Is it murders? All right. murders? And What's I do want the... to be careful. I'm, I'm trying, well, I, I'm, I'm being very strong about my condemnation of this person's, uh, of this person's um, viewpoint. Uh, but I do want to be saying that I do understand that the idea of racial tension that, that we are working through in the West is very, is, is very tricky, right? And the idea of justice for people groups is an important thing um, to talk about. So I, I want to be clear about the thing that I'm, I think I'm condemning here. Um, so his basic point is, you know, some view the action as a sunny example of forgiveness, a moments of grace and tenderness that bridge the chasm between races and provide an example for all to emulate. Um, so racism specifically is what right. he's calling out. Um, so it, it wasn't so much that he murdered uh, or, or uh, his brother was murdered. It's that his brother was murdered by a right. white So he's saying that that's that's that, the issue. that basically that uh, that white society assumes that black society will forgive them and show them grace, in which case he's saying that um, it is uh, it's no longer the time to show grace and forgiveness because that uh, that uh, short changes this the change in society that needs to happen. Which I would say is is a true viewpoint if he is God. Um, if, so, my, and just to run through my uh, kind of my, I would say that the reason I'm I'm particularly upset about this particular person is, uh, and I've talked a little bit about uh, closet Marxism and this just in these the uh, in the past, but there's a lot yeah. of closet Marxism in today's society, and Marxism views the world as essentially in conflict. And so the idea behind Marxism is that everything would be equal. And if things are not equal, it's because one group has taken from another group. 
And so everything should. And so if there's a group um, that's had somebody take it, that that is any group, and that you know it doesn't have to be race; it could be any group. Uh, any group that is um, that is um, been hard done by it's be, it's because specifically of this conflict narrative where uh, it has to have been based upon like taken by force. Um, this is this is at the heart of a lot of our discussions about this is why privilege, for instance, is something to be apologized for, right? Because if you have a pr privilege, it is because you specifically have taken it from somebody else. That's how it has to be. And so I think that that this particular author, as I've read a lot of his works, has is basically perpetrating what I would say is is a is is a mainstream Marxist uh, um, viewpoint instead of a biblical one. Um, and so I th and so actually, the, I'm not a huge fan of the Babylon Bee. The Babylon Bee was great. Uh, they they post somebody wrote an article. Uh, Media warns excessive forgiveness could set back outrage narrative hundreds of years. Um, and I think yeah. that that's what bothers me about this. Right? I think this person basically feels that the society needs to have more outrage, more outrage because uh, f because things are being have been taken from a group, and and I think. That there are rights and there is wrongs, and that one group is in the right and the other is in the wrong. And I think as opposed to Job, which has that same viewpoint and turns it upside down where you learn that the line between right and wrong flows through every single individual, right? And because the line of, the line of right and wrong flows through every individual, every single person is not in the position of God to show, uh, to show vengeance and to purport justice uh, or to extract justice but rather should take on the attitude of Jesus of grace and forgiveness. And I think that this, I think I would call this person out that I think that they've allowed that they are, they've chosen the parts of scripture uh, to, that only support their framework instead of holding up the parts that, um, that are uncomfortable to their framework. And it, the, the vice versa could be true. Right. But I, I wanted to point to this article and I, I'm being a little couchy just because it, it is, um, I'd, I'd encourage people to go and, and read it uh, and read for themselves. Um, but I think it's a good example of, um, I think, using um, using convenient parts of scripture in order to support a narrative which you want to point out. Uh, and in this case, I think it's a narrative of, of outrage, right? Like just needing to be outraged more about everything. Yeah, I I just have uh I just have an issue with this because the uh the brother um of the man who was killed, he didn't make it a race thing. Um as far as I'm aware, the words that he used were not racially charged. I don't know if they were racial mm -hmm. at all. It was, "Hey, you did this against me. I forgive you. You need to turn mm -hmm. to Jesus. That's where hope and life will be found." It wasn't a you did this, you white person did this against me, black person. Um, and it seems like it's been, I mean, cast into the context of um, a, a race conversation. Mm -hmm. But that's not that's not the original um, conversation. I think once you once you adopt a Marxist viewpoint, you see um, you see the fundamental organizing principle of the world is group conflicts you choose the group and then and then those the conflicts between those groups organizes the way you see the world right so if you've chosen a marxist yeah. viewpoint where the entire 
the way the world works is based upon the conflict between two uh, racial groups, you will see everything in the world through that viewpoint. Every interaction has become through. So this is can no this can no longer be a moment um, where a person shows a shocking amount of Christ-likeness in making a massive show of grace based upon his faith in Jesus. It can't be that. It is instead uh, something anti that sets back your conflict, which you think is important uh, for the way you view all the world, right? So and this is why I'm calling out this person mm-hmm. as I think. So instead of allowing a, a, a show of grace to come to the forefront, you need your conflict that you that you think should organize the world to come to the forefront. And that's why I think uh, it is... It is shocking to me that people that can proclaim that to claim that they speak in the name of this of this religion to call out too much forgiveness um, as being unchristian just boggles boggles my mind. And to me, it illustrates, I think, um, the danger of 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 scripture becoming an ism. I think. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think uh, look at all the the passages that that Christ gave on loving your neighbor. Um, it's just out of control. I I do think this is incredibly complicated. Um, you know, uh, the gentleman who was shot um, li- uh, had a witness who lived across the hall and was a uh, um, uh, it was a key role in the trial. His name is Joshua mm-hmm. Brown. But just um, a few days after was um shot um by a random there's a random drive by mm-hmm. um in his neighborhood so it's it's incredibly there there are deep systemic right. issues um that I think need to be addressed but I think saying don't forgive people um even though forgiveness doesn't mean I'm going to not move towards mm-hmm. justice I'm I'm going to ignore laws and I'm going to defend the innocent um but I think to say we shouldn't forgive them and we should hold on to bitterness, um, that's that's not a Christian perspective. I think we can say it pretty confidently. Just be clear just to say both sides. If you're inclined to read these this sort of thing as ridiculous and maybe to downplay the, the conflict between, between uh, two groups that this person sees as so important, you need to check yourself too against Scripture. This this does go both ways, right? And I do think that it is sure. imp- it is imp- uh, important that, that the call for grace and forgiveness doesn't un- com- does not undermine um, the grace of Christ in the cross. Also shows the justice of God, right? So the fundamental ideas that are in tr- here are, are actually shared. But I think it's a great illustration of how I think that they've been organized in a, in a different way, um, and I think they've been organized into something. I would say that uh, that supports um, th- this person's narrative instead of instead of the narrative of, of Jesus. I would say so. Anyway, there's something I want to talk about, uh, and I think it was uh, I think it's relevant to this discussion about how, um, like you said at the beginning, right, that two people can read the same scripture and sometimes come to radically different viewpoints about how what it means. Well, um, yeah, I think. Uh... Man, there's so much to be said here. Well, let's uh, um, let, let's move let, let's move along just for the sake of uh one thing uh um I did want to throw out and this is a little less connected um but something that I um I know uh Ian you're you're moving towards um a wedding in the next few weeks um that you're officiating and I'm uh, I just this weekend did a wedding, oh, nice. the wedding. Um did did get married myself. Um 
But one of the things that that struck me, I'm I, I'm reading my. Um, have you heard of the book Meaning of Marriage? I have, and I've looked at it, and I'm not sure I'm impressed, but I'm not sure I'm unimpressed either. <laughs> uh, well, so it's the first. I I am ashamed to say this, um, but it's the first. Um, non-academic book by Tim Keller that I've read. Yeah, maybe that's um, and I've there may actually, not be I, anything to be ashamed of. That's fine. Well, it's it's I think it's because it's so popular. I, I should um, say I don't necessarily I have a problem with Tim Keller. I, I, I have I'm annoyed by him because he was all the rage uh at uh, in Campus Crusade when I was working there for I think he talked in a couple conferences. And so it was like all anybody like him. everybody's viewpoint ran through a couple Tim Keller's books. And uh, so it was not as much that I think that there's anything wrong. It's more of just I was uh, I get a, I, I get annoyed with popular things. Maybe it was it was the hipster theologian in me. I'm... Uh, well, I uh, yeah. So there's been a couple things I really enjoyed. Um, one thing um, I thought was really good was he points out how in the traditional um, and again by traditional he's he's talking his mm-hmm. context, um, but uh, they have the um, do you take this woman to be married. I do. Will you love her in sickness or health? I will. Um, and uh, then, at another point in this in the uh, sermon, or another point in, the, in the, the ceremony, there's the I take you to be my lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward. And he makes the point that there's there's two different vows um, being made. There's two different promises. Mm-hmm. One is a promise specifically before mm-hmm. God, between the like the husband and God, or the wife and God. And then there's a vow between the husband and wife, and then the wife and the husband. And so he points out that um, the marriage covenant in our context is unique because it's a vow not just between people, but between people and right. between God. I, I would actually go um, one. Which I would I think go is one step farther than that, actually. So I've been doing. I did a ton of thinking of this as I wrote uh, my brother's wedding. I actually think it's. And there's to think about the fact of what makes something a Christian wedding. And I actually think that it's a three-way covenant because I think that the other party involved is that the church is involved in a Christian covenant. So it's actually a the the couple um, the couple makes a vow to God and to each other, and the church makes a commitment to them, and vice versa. Yeah, and I think in our culture you have that in the fact that you have witnesses. Yeah. So, like, I had to fill out a, a marriage certificate um, as the efficient, but also, I mean, representing God. But then there's also witnesses in the community that had to sign this uh, this the marriage certificate moving right. towards a marriage license to be recognized. Well, and I think the it's state. the idea that uh, that the church commits to supporting the couple, and the couple commits that because ultimately the church is called the bride of Christ, right? So that the, the church is supposed to be a good witness of the uh, or that the couple is supposed to be a good witness of Christ's relationship with his bride. And so in some sense the ch- the couple commits to the church to be that picture and the church commits to the couple to love and support them in their endeavor in doing that. Well, I just thought it was uh, it was interesting to me as as uh as someone who's officiated a wedding um uh, with both elements for at least a dozen times um I never realized what was going on there. <laughs> it's just like this is just what you do, and I feel like it's um, it's just another reminder that um, you can sit there and miss something, um, that you yourself are doing, uh, if you're not paying attention. And I think uh, having other people point things out to you, either alive or written or what have you, um, 
that's part of what it means to be human is to recognize my worldview isn't complete. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, it's one of it's the it's why it's good to read theology or read other people's viewpoints, right? And even when you know, even as angry as as I got, uh, and I tried to hold myself back, but even as angry as I got with about this article, right? It still provided an opportunity for me to look in the mirror and at the things I believed, right? And make and you know, ch- check check yourself, right? As it is, as it were, <laughs> as it were. Well, um, well, let's take a break. Before we jump into specifics about Scripture as a discipline, let's take a quick break and be right back. So I think we're we're talking specifics um, in this episode about the spiritual discipline of Scripture. We've talked a lot about how uh, Scripture is probably preeminent, Ian, with um, uh, what it means to renew our minds mm-hmm. so that we might know and understand um, what the good uh, will of God is versus the, the preconceived conceptions of who God is and who we are and what the whole world is, basically. If we don't have Scripture... That's the most important um, element. Right. But uh, practically, there is a lot of ways that the church and the, I guess the community of faith include like the, 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 the Jewish culture before them who had scripture. Sure. Um, there's a lot of ways that they have saturated um, themselves in scripture. Um, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I so, mean, that's just wide open. Right. So let's let let's subvert expectations a little bit here. I know probably our tradition, when it talks about scripture as a discipline, probably runs first to how the the individual should read and study the Bible. So let's flip that a little bit and actually talk about um, scripture as a discipline in the life of the church. Um, this is actually something I've learned a lot from uh, interacting with uh, the Eastern Orthodox tradition. You know, I had a, an Eastern Orthodox priest tell me that that they were not a fan of us teaching or inviting people to Bible studies uh, because it's like, well, we read the church, the Bible in church every week. Why should you encourage people to read it by themselves? And I don't agree with that sentiment, but it actually was a good challenge to me to think about the fact that no, Scripture has a central place as a discipline in the church as well. Yeah. So let's start for saying, like, how do you think? How does the church? Uh, practice the discipline of scripture so let me let me ask you in this way andrew how does how do you think your church does that well your church context and what would be a way that you would like to see maybe your church if you could you know if you could choose maybe use scripture as a discipline better yeah so i think um one of the things that i see in my church is uh is a lot of freedom there's a ton of entrepreneurs where i'm at um a real research heavy part of the world and so there's a lot of uh, individual ownership and they uh, a lot of empowerment when it comes to your faith. But one of the things that they put on uh, on the individual's plate, and I think we could grow better as a community, but but we say, hey, you should have a, a time set aside. Um, you should have a plan, and and you should um, the the word we would wouldn't wouldn't be this, but basically meditate on it, mm-hmm. um, study it. Um, uh, I guess maybe defensively, like there's a need, let's look to it, but also offensively. Let's allow this to shape my mind 
and issues that maybe I wouldn't um, walk into saying, I need to have an opinion on the role of uh, government um, mm-hmm. in the Christian life. But the Bible talks about the role of government. So, okay, this is what this is what I'm thinking about right now. And so allowing scripture to inform your worldview, even if that's something you're not seeking, but but primarily um, time and uh, intentionality. I think that's really good, but I think we could grow a ton in unity. Uh, we have um, what we call an all play, where we encourage every small group in our church to focus on the weekend message. Um, like if you're doing a marriage series or you're doing a child raising series, you're doing a work as worship series, that's great. But put that on pause for the next maybe two months while we as a church come around this, these central topics. And, and there's the key verses that from the sermon that we dig into in our small groups. And I think that's really good. But I think um, we could grow in our uh, daily unified um, approach to Scripture. Well, so this is interesting, Andrew. And this is me, again, not being critical of your church. But it's interesting when I ask the question about how your church uses Scripture you uh, couch that as how your church encourages individuals to use scripture. And those are not the same things, actually, right? All the things that you just talked about are actually individuals engaging or engaging them as individuals, with the exception of maybe like group studies, as opposed to engaging them corporately. And so let me actually rephrase that question. Like, how does your church corporately practice it as a discipline? Sure. So this, I think, points out part of the uh, the challenge in describing how the church does things. Like our our, so we are a mega church, and our weekends um, would be described maybe by we wouldn't say this about ourselves um, because we're not on the extreme end of the spectrum. I mean, there's always someone more extreme, but people have called us seeker sensitive, and so we're expecting the average person who walks in for the first time maybe to not be a Christian, actually probably not a Christian. I grew up in a Christian subculture, but they themselves, um, I would say, are not Christian. And so we're trying to engage them at a level that is easily, um, it, you know, is to help them go closer in the relationship with Christ. Um, but we're, when on the weekend, I mean, the question of, is everyone in this, in this, this circle a Christian? Well, probably not. Mm-hmm. So I would say um, where our church gathers, it's in smaller groups, during the week. So I would say in our smaller groups during a week, that is our regular church gathering or our membership, like our, our we've got like a, what we call our, basically our membership um, or like our church, I don't know what the the modern term is for this, but basically our, our members meeting, um, mm-hmm. that would be a, um, specifically our church gatherings. Okay. But those are only two or three times a year. So it's, I, I would say um, the daily thing is, probably where I think we could grow. I don't know if that answers answers your question. Yeah, well, I think it is. Um, I, I think it is. It does highlight uh, a little bit of the weakness of um, the tradition that that saw a lot of value in individuals studying the Bible is that sometimes the individual use of the scripture eclipses um, how scripture is is used corporately. I think and I, I think that sometimes uh, in some of it, uh, especially bigger churches, it sometimes happens, right? Where you, um, where you miss you miss opportunities to allow scripture to kind of saturate the corporate gatherings. Um, this is something I've actually, I've been really impressed with uh, that drew me to the Anglican tradition, even though I'm not specifically Anglican, right? Is the fact that, and this is true for a lot of liturgical traditions, right? Where 
a, a large part of every Sunday, uh, you read the you know you read the prophet, you sing the psalm, you read the 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 New Testament, and you read the gospel, right? And there's you know the four readings from Scripture every single, um, every single Sunday, right? And so what you're doing is allowing scripture to be heard constantly in your in your midst which i think i think is formational for churches so and i think it should be so we encourage every small every person who's who's a member of our community to um to jump into a smaller group mm-hmm. and so and in, in every small group we always have multiple scripture passages that are read and so i think it we have that um but it just has a different um look and feel it's in a sure, home sure. or it's at a starbucks rather than in a anglican church right yeah no and that, and that, you know that, that that's great right but i think it's the, the the point of uh that if you're a church part of what you're that that scripture has a formational aspect in the church right and you should be in various ways reading it together um if anything just as a as a kind of a focus right it's kind of like bringing up it's like saying your team motto, right? Um, that it's 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 it provides an anchor for everything that you do. And so, I guess what you're saying is uh, the way that we we don't have a systematic way to approach scripture every weekends with a with a broader gathering, like an, I would say an open gathering where it's it's probably twenty to thirty percent people who aren't yet Christians more evangelistic centered, but it, it is certainly scripture based and certainly scripture is read. I don't know that I've been to a service yet where yeah. in the last several years where scripture hasn't been read, but you're saying it's not a systematic plan of old Testament, new Testament gospel. I'm, I'm not saying that's one thing or the way the better. I'm just pointing out that it's a, it is an important thing for, I've never been to your church, right? So I'm not, I'm not saying anything specific about your church. Oh yeah. But I mean the style, right? Uh, some other ways I've seen scripture used, I think, is really helpful. I, I really like um, so in, in the Anglican tradition, and I th- in, in the Catholic tradition as well. You uh, you say or or you have a reading from the Psalm, uh, but I really like uh, some of the Anglican churches I've been at. We we sing the Psalm. I really I think that's a great use of scripture. Is actually everyone standing up and singing a Psalm. I mean, they're Psalms after all. Um, <laughs> and I actually all. think, I think, uh, and I think maybe if you're in a tradition that doesn't, um, that doesn't do that sort of thing, maybe, uh, having worship songs that you feel are directly inspired by the Psalm and the worship tradition directly in scripture. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it maybe, so maybe if you're a worship leader, that's a good thing to think about is specifically having songs that directly reflect the wording from the Psalms. I think is, is uh, one, a great use of scripture. One thing that I have loved, just absolutely loved, is a website called um, theversesproject.com. Oh, yeah? And it's music and visual art to help people memorize and meditate on scripture. And there's uh, probably hundreds of scriptural passages set to different types of music. I mean, from R&B to EDM to country to, I mean, you just name it, the folk. But it's uh, all sorts of um, songs, and many of them based on the Psalms, but based on all, all sorts of Scripture. But I just love that concept, and they give it away for free. So I, I commend that to you, oh, the Versus Project. That's and great, And anyone yeah. who's listening. Um, but that's, I think, a good inspiration for what we could also do in our communities. 
Um, and it's, but it does lean, um, I think whenever you have, uh, music, it leans well into the idea of meditation. Um, okay, yeah. you have something in your head on repeat. It's kind of like the earworm idea. Um, uh, you just, you, it's in your head and you're just going over and over and over and over and over in a healthy way. That's good. Um, I feel like there's, I have too many things that I meditate on that aren't healthy. Like I'm thinking, I was just at a wedding and I'm thinking, how many of these songs are wholesome, much less good for me? You know, mm, like, yeah. are they forming me more into someone who's inward focused or more into someone that says, I'm submitting to God's worldview? Um, but I think, I think singing is, is real. Singing scripture is mm-hmm. super powerful and singing scripture in harmonies and with others in unison is a really beautiful image. Um, and that's super formative, but I really like, um, so I, I mentioned briefly, um, time, but also a plan. I love, um, the, the different churches, um, reading plans. Now you're in an Anglican church and you, you shared about like what you do every week. Um, is there a, have you dived into like the daily and the, the global, like the annual rhythms of those, that scripture or, or where where are you with that? I don't want to put you on the spot. But the sure, time, yeah. Right? And so, well, to, to be to be clear, I don't want. I'm not. I go to a Presbyterian church actually right now, but I also attend a worship service at my school, which is in in, in the Anglican tradition. Um, and so I, I, you know, I've started actually going this semester going to morning prayers, which means I have to get up pretty early to try to beat rush hour on the subway. Uh, but one of the reasons I like going to morning prayers is just because, you know, uh, in the, in the lectionary schedule that they slowly read through different passages of scripture, right? And so by going uh, and going every morning, right, the idea is that you can kind of hear as a church systematically hear passages gone through. Um, and I think there is, there's a lot of great, you know, and I think a lot of people when they do this, they run to like read the Bible in a year programs, which is maybe not the best way to start. Um, maybe start with like read the gospels in a year or something. The gospels in a year. That's interesting. Or maybe That's the gospels a much slower in a, pace. Uh, well, yeah, maybe there maybe the gospels in a, in a semester. What, uh, do you follow a plan, um, personally or do you, or do you just say, I'm going to jump in and that's going to be my exposure? I, I do not follow a plan personally. I just kind of do, do what I want. Free spirit, Andrew. I do what I want. Not not saying uh, that that's best, but that is that is the reality. You, you sound like a Marxist over here. Uh, well, I, I guilty as charged, not really. Uh, no, I mean, well, you're submitting to the um, the church plan. I think that's great. I'm um, just giving you a hard time. I think uh, um, the idea of of sitting down and saying, um, "I'm going to read this. I'm going to study this. I'm going to be thinking about the same thing that uh, millions of other people mm-hmm. literally are thinking about today." And millions of people are coming together today to, to focus on. I think that is um, that's certainly significant, um, and I think it's a really powerful thing to say. As a world, we're focusing on, uh, like in Romans, um, submit to every authority that's been established because they've been established by God. Right? Wow, you know, like that's heavy, um, and it's. I think it's cool the uh, um, how all the overlap with the. Like the Anglican Book of Prayer, Common Book of Prayer, that's got um, recommended reading lists for both a two-year and three-year. Um, the Roman Catholic um, liturgies, all the Orthodox liturgies. Right. Um, I, I think that's that's great. I think all of this factors in, and this is kind of the summation of what I started the episode. All like a lot of my thinking along this lines. 
Uh, I've been looking recently at some different catechisms. Uh, the the new city catechism is in right now. I think you know, that's out of Keller's group, I believe. I, and I have some oh, church yeah. that are using it. And, look, you know, I'm leaving my, side, my thoughts about specific catechisms aside. Um, I've been thinking about the idea of catechesis. And this is based upon um, an article that I read that was basically pointing out um, the missionary context of the church. And so I, I've become convinced, Andrew, that actually I think – I do think we've reached a sort of end of an era in the West. And maybe and, – and this has happened before people have Whoa. thought this, and and uh, and it hasn't turned out to be true. But I, I think what – you had a, a, 50, a 1800-year stretch, I think you could say, where Scripture and the church and the teaching of the gospel – infiltrated and shaped so much of western society that you could almost say that uh, the default thinking of a lot of people in western society was at least tangentially associated with um with what the church believed right so a person from at least and they they might know who shadrach meshach and abednego was and they might know some biblical terminology and their ways of thinking was, was shaped by these sort of realities right and i think we have reached the point where that is really no longer the case um, the quote-unquote, the secular worldview, I think, has completely eclipsed as the normal worldview, right? And I think we have— Yeah, re- I, I, think, I think you're right. I think to say people would understand biblical references is is gone. We have reached the point, I think, I think the church is in many ways back to where they were um, in the first couple centuries when they created the process of catechesis. And the process of catechesis was basically saying the normal way which you've that you've seen the world is not is no longer it's not tangentially related to the truth. It is fundamentally opposed to in many ways. And the church had to go through um, a systematic kind of renewal of the way people thought through catechesis. Uh, in many ways, a lot of this happened in missionary movements too, when people, when societies were converted from one religion to another. And I do think we've reached the point where churches have to understand that we have to re-catechize our members. If you're, and if you're doing youth ministry, you need to really take this to heart. Your, your youth specifically need to be catechized. They are not going to – nothing they watch on TV – Nothing they hear in in on the radio, nothing that they get anywhere else has anything tangentially compared to the scriptural world framework. They need to be sure. catechized. And I think actually I think sure. all of this stuff as the communal aspect of the discipline of reading scripture is that as churches we need to understand that we have to saturate our communities in scripture in a new in a catechetical sort of way where we are aiming to reshape everything that we think because, like I said, like nothing you go and watch on Netflix is going to reinforce this worldview, <laughs> right? Yeah. You're not going no, to get right. at anything else. Well, one of the things that I really liked at a, at a previous church I was at um, was they had a um, – uh, it was basically a website where you would um, – either they would email you a PDF or you could get, log into the website. And it would have a, a reading of, of scripture, hmm. um, which I used to stress out about. I, I have to read it. I can't listen to it um, audibly. Um, but, you know, as I think about it, the majority of the church um, today, perhaps, um, but certainly historically, the historical church has been illiterate. And so the majority of Christians, um, the majority of the community of faith um, has heard scripture, not read scripture. So if it's good enough for them, it, it's certainly not wrong. 
Um, but then listening to scripture, and then um, there was a there'd be a, a couple discussion questions, a devotional. Um, but then it it had a uh, um, a leader in the church say, um, "This is for me how I'm reading this passage and how I'm I'm choosing to apply it." And it reminded me a lot of how um, people would come to Jesus and say. What does this mean? Explain this passage to me. Mm-hmm. Um, or the old, um, the way you'd go into a synagogue, you'd have someone read a passage and then preach from that passage. Um, say, this is how we should think about this and what it means to our lives. And I, I really like that because it's um, it's not only communal focus, but it's also given example and modeling how to how should we approach this and uh, and apply it to our lives. And then there was discussion at the very bottom. So like. If I were to log in right now, there'd be 40 or 50 people who have already engaged today on this one passage. Um, and I think that, in my mind, is maybe one of the best ways to have a daily, um, you know, longing for the word like a newborn babe um, in a communal aspect as well, while we're super isolated. Right. Yeah. Well, let's let's pivot for a second. Let's just run through. We have a, we had a list of some different ways that's, that uh, historically... Um, God's people have tried to practice the discipline of of reading Scripture. So, uh, Andrew, why don't you run through some of these, and I'll I'll do have some commentary along the side. But run through some of these ways that that we've uh, that the church has done, or the church uh, God's people have done this in order to include Jews in the Old Testament. There's the uh, idea of uh, like a devotional time for individuals with Protestants. Um, like I'm going to study Scripture for myself. So Luther really made this uh, possible and popular when he translated uh, the, the Latin Vulgate, mm-hmm. um, the Latin Bible used by the Roman Church into German so that people could read it themselves. Um, and I think that's that's been a lot of the Protestant stream has got into, I'm going to study the Bible for myself. And I think it's good, but I think we've gotten away from, um, uh, we've studied scripture proactively to say, hey, what do I believe about these issues? Um, but we're not. Uh, as much allowing the scripture to um, shape us. And mm-hmm. so the, the um, I guess, whoever the, the Protestants are protesting against, um, they've got the idea of Lectio Divina, um, where you, it's a it's like a divine lectionary, a divine reading of scriptures is how they, it's loosely translated in Latin. But basically you've got the concept of reading a passage, meditating on the passage, praying through the passage, and then, uh, contemplating or more like just listening and mm-hmm. giving space to God to speak to you through this passage. Um, and I feel like uh, it, it's uh, it's ironic. It's a, it's another formulaic way that's not necessarily how relationships work, um, but that's, that's helpful. It's like uh, if I have a scheduled date with my wife every week, is that going to make us be in love? No, but it's, it's certainly healthy. And I think that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of the concept um, for spiritual disciplines is there's some things that if you just do them, that's that's healthy. You're probably not going to thrive unless you're doing these things. And I think listening, reading, praying, and listening through a passage uh, is something that I personally am trying to get much better at. So just tacking onto that, uh, at the heart of this, of the idea behind like Lectio Divina is the fact that the Holy Spirit is involved in the inspiration of Scripture, and that we sure. meet God in the Holy Spirit in Scripture. And that's kind of the idea behind it, right? That it's not just facts to be assimilated, but God is met in it. And so it's 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 maybe a strategy towards that. And I think it has um, some good and some, some shortcut. The only book I've ever read on this is by Eugene Peterson. It's called Eat This Book. 
conversation mm-hmm. there to spiritual reading. I don't think it's amazing. I I think uh, <laughs> I think you know pull it. You can get a preview of it on Google Books. I think it's worth pulling up and like reading the intro and flying through a couple of pages. Um, but I think if you wanted kind of a, some some thoughts, it would be an okay place to go. Um, just because you can access a lot of it for free, just to kind of get an idea of what um, a spiritual attitude of reading might be like. Well, a uh, another issue um, that comes up a lot in our really quick-paced um, Google access culture, at least mine, is the lack of memorization. Mm. Um, I don't have to memorize anything um, at all. Like, I don't need my own phone number. Um, but... I think uh, there is something to Jesus first, before he started his ministry, he was tempted and he um, was able to pass through this temptation specifically by quoting scripture. Uh Um, And I think that's, that's something that, that probably every Christian could grow in. It's a, it's kind of humiliating to hear about how um, there are other faiths that will memorize their entire canon um, and that's in another language that they don't even understand. And so <laughs> it's like, holy smokes, you don't understand what you just memorized? And you memorized the entire thing? Oh, man. Like the idea of me reading the Old Testament at some times is exhausting, much less memorizing mm-hmm. the, you know, the genealogies and all the, the offerings given to the temple by the various tribes. But no, I think memorization is certainly mm-hmm. a historic way that the church has um allowed the bible to saturate them just a fascinating uh, a fascinating story on that well fast i watched um so bruce springsteen who i've mentioned on the show before uh did a, a netflix series where he uh he did some live comp uh he did a live concert on broadview on broadway not broadview i live near broadview <laughs> on broadway um where he kind of talked through some of his life and sang some of his songs um, and he has this fascinating thing at the end because he he's a fairly he grew up Catholic and he's I mean he kind of I mean he's a typical musician right but he tells a story about going back to the neighborhood where he grew up and everything has kind of changed and this in this moment of reflection what came to him was the Lord's Prayer and he, and he recites it on stage and he ta- and he said like you know those catholics those catholic priests you know they know how to get you they got they put your hooks in you yeah. and they got you good and there's a certain thing that just understanding how when you when you put things something into your mind how it's there even if you don't recognize it right and it's it sits there and it molds you even if you don't realize what it's doing uh, and that's why we, you know, the church's practice memorization, right? Because it puts it puts it in there. Um, yeah, and I th- for it to percolate. I think practically, that's probably a good place to to land the plane as we talk about what does it mean to steward our minds, to have the the spiritual practice and the spiritual disciplines um, that will form us more into the image of Christ um, and be less formed into our own image. I think the idea of I, I want to be at a place where I don't. Um, think and act based on a commitment of faith, but based on a um, on a Christian instinct. And the only way to develop mental uh, instinctive patterns of thought is by disciplining myself and developing um, habits of thought through habits of action, through habits of study and prayer and meditation um, over the scriptures, um, submitting to a, a, a way of thinking and submitting to the authority of uh, um, a way of truth that's outside of myself. Yeah, 
I think that uh, intuitive following intuitively is a really great uh, summary of what we're trying to uh, what we're trying to propose. And yeah, well, you know, and maybe there's a whole lot of practical aspects out there about how to do this. But I think the reality is that if you want to go find some practical ways to um, to be more saturated in scripture, those those resources are a dime a dozen, right? And so maybe, and I th- I think what we've been trying to offer is just a, a sort of apology, an apology for why this is something that's worth your time. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny to me all this stuff about um, like I don't know if you, I've talked about the the power of habit um a couple times, but it's like um, I the idea of community is such a key part of habits. Um, and we see that in community in the church. We do this in community, and we share what we've learned. It, it impacts our actual life. We see the results of what we're studying. Um, we were designed to to do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is this is how we, we were designed to work in this way. Um, yeah. So I'd say take, if you're not right now, if you don't have a daily um, uh, like way you're exposing yourself to scripture. Um, try it out. Share something that you've how God is speaking to you through this scripture, or and try to use that today practically, whatever it is. But um, spend some time reading, but also spend some time listening. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, that's that's all I've got, Ian. I think we could. I mean, we could talk about different types of um, literal, moral, allegorical, Talmudesque. Um, we could talk about a million different ways of that people do approach scripture, but we've we've hit um, so much of studying the scripture elsewhere. I think um, yeah, maybe it's uh, something maybe it. we'll uh, we'll come back thing. to on a thoughts on episode just to do a little bit more about different uh, different ways people approach scripture. But uh, I think we have uh, this this dead horse has been beaten enough. <laughs> uh, if you have questions or comments, if you have ways that have been helpful for you um, to study scripture individually or in community. If somebody's studying scripture and it freaks you out, um, if somebody's studying scripture and and you want to be more like that, um, hit us up on Facebook or email us at macrotheologians. That's one word at gmail.com. But yeah, I hope this has been helpful. I hope you've been challenged. I hope you've been stretched. Um, and uh, we do hope that you'll join us again in two weeks. Um, but until then, this has been Yates. And Ian. Thanks, guys, for joining us on the back row. Godspeed. Thanks for listening. Any views expressed on the podcast do not necessarily represent all of Christendom, so we encourage you to read and study for yourself and form your own thoughts. Special thanks to our production engineer, Johan Benjamin. The music was composed by Simon Yao. If you enjoy the show, leave us a review on iTunes, and we hope you'll join us again next time for another episode of The Back Row Theologians. John, we had a technical problem because you know. Hey, you there? Hey, was that me? Yeah, I think so. Hmm, it's weird. Um, but if so, I guess uh, uh, John, just uh, I'm still recording. You know, you recording? Yep, I am. So good. Uh, so basically, uh, you can, uh, John, if you can, um, I'll I'll finish my last sentence and allow Ian a chance to jump in. Okay. Um, but if we ignore our minds, then we're toast. Mm Mm-hmm.